0: what's going on everyone welcome to corner table talk i'm your host brad johnson and here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture as always with questions or comments about our show you can reach me at brad at post and Beam, and we love your questions and your comments Also a reminder, please stick around for the segment with my dear friend, sister, Ambassador Shabazz. We call that How We Move. She breaks down our conversation with the guest and then shares some of the stuff that she's up to that we always love hearing about. So stick around for How We Move just following the segment of Corner Table Talk. So let's jump in. The expression finger on the pulse is often used to describe someone who has the ability to read the ongoings of culture, synthesize the information, and in the case of my guest today, write, speak, produce, and publish work that chronicles our collective experience. Many people remember Kevin Powell from the early 90s in MTV series, The Real World, where he was an original cast member. However, I first became aware of Kevin when he joined Quincy Jones as a senior writer and part of the editorial team at the Startup and Groundbreaking Vibe magazine, and that began, I believe, in 1992. Since then, Kevin is the author of 15 books. How he has time to do anything else, I don't know, but he's a writer, producer, and director of an upcoming film. And one of the most celebrated political, cultural, literary, and hip hop voices in America. And that is the truth. Recently, it was announced that Kevin will be following in the footsteps of Toni Morrison and Nikki Giovanni as a writer in residence at Prairie View A&M University in Texas for the 2022 23 school year. He is a writer, human, and civil rights activist, a native of the Garden State, born in Jersey City. Kevin is a longtime proud resident of Brooklyn, New York. BK, Kevin, it's been a long time, my friend. You're someone I've really admired and have followed your career. It's so nice to see you, man, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's my honor. And again, please forgive my voice. I'm praying that it holds up, but I really... Thrilled. I want to thank you, Linda and Ambassador Shabazz, just for the opportunity. Thank you. Oh, it's
0: our pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. We appreciate you. Even though you're a little under the weather, you still wanted to go forward here. We'll certainly excuse any raspiness, but uh, you sound nice and clear here. So, Kevin, we kick things off with what I call our short order question. So tell me, what music is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to?
1: Oh, my gosh. The last few days, Tina Marie. Uh, Marvin Gaye, Coltrane, a lot of Coltrane in the last few days. My gosh, I just saw the David Bowie documentary, so I've been listening to quite a bit of Bowie, just revisiting his work and his long journey. I listen to a lot of stuff, but honestly, every single day, there's jazz, there's classic jazz, because I, jazz is what I write to. Jazz and classical music, those are two music forms that just keep making me feel at peace. I mentioned Coltrane. Ella Fitzgerald is my favorite woman vocalist ever. I just love her. I especially love her collaborations with Louis Armstrong. And I'm someone who didn't even like jazz, Brad, when I was coming up. remember the new school in New York City. I used to work at the new school in the early 90s. Before I joined Quincy Jones and Vibe Magazine. I had a boss who would always put the radio on WBGO, the jazz station, 88.3 in New York. Out
0: of Newark. Yeah.
1: And every time we left the office, I would switch it to the pop station or the hip hop.
0: <laughs> you sound like the argument my father and I had in the car. I would be switching over to BLS and he'd switch it back over to the jazz station.
1: <laughs> exactly. And one day I asked Sam Anderson, and Sam actually has a winter home in South Florida. And I think about it. He's like, I can't deal with New York weather anymore. I was like, I hear you, brother. But he, I just said, okay, I don't know how to tell the difference between a sax and a trumpet. You say Coltrane Miles, you'll say to me, who is that? I said, what do I do? He told me what to listen to. And little did I know, all these years later, I'd be a massive jazz fan, a massive jazz fan. It's American classical music. I was just talking to Christian McBride yesterday, the great bass player who hosts a lot of things for WBGO. He's working on a new album with mm-hmm. Layla Hathaway and Sting. He's reimagined classic jazz stuff. And I said to Christian, I want to write the liner notes. He said, For real? I said, Yeah. And I'm thinking about, man, years ago, I wouldn't even imagine writing liner notes for a jazz musician. So jazz is my daily diet, but I go in tangents. If I'm feeling Tina Marie, if I'm feeling Marvin Gaye, then I do that as well. I just go to different places with music. It feeds my soul, just like food feeds my soul. I can't imagine. I think when you talk about all the hatred and insanity and ignorance out there, I have found in my speeches that food and music are the things that often can bring diverse people together in ways that nothing else can. So those two things matter to me a lot.
0: Word. I'm right there with you. What about your morning beverage? I know you're drinking tea today because you're a little under the weather, Mm -hmm. but what's the first beverage you consume in the morning?
1: Water, lots of water. And I hated water as a kid. I drink water and then I do make a protein drink. Coconut milk and bananas and apples and kale and spinach and raw cashews and raw walnuts and chia seeds and flax seeds and peanut butter loaded up. And that's, and vegan protein because I'm a vegan. I'm a vegan. I've been a vegan for a while now. So I load it up with all those things. But that is probably my favorite breakfast drink, honestly, other than water. I just, a
0: lot of water. Yeah, man. So you took me to my next question and answered it, but let's go into it anyway. I was going to ask you, vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or other, clearly you are vegan. So how long, Kevin, has
1: that been? Since the 2000s. And it's really funny when I think about it, because I had a partner in the 90s, the late 90s. She was from the Bay Area. She was born on the East Coast and her mother was basically a hippie. She said her mother packed up in a van and they drove across country in one of those old, remember those old Volkswagens from the 70s and 60s? I mean, yeah. (laughs) And so she grew up in San Francisco and I remember saying to her one day in the nineties, I was like, yo, let's go to white castle. She looked at me and she said, I don't go to white castle. I was like, (laughs) word never. I was like, what about McDonald's? BK, KFC? No, I don't do that. I was like, really? What's wrong with you? And little did I know, I to, I was the cat, Brad, that used to mock the people that we used to call the nuts and berries people. I'm the nuts and berries person. I really am now. It was gradual. For a while, it was chicken and fish, which I still think are wonderful to eat. And sometimes when I travel outside the country, as you know, certain cultures. Fish is very, the culture's fish-based. Like when I was mm-hmm. in Japan, it was fish-based. I couldn't avoid fish. I've been in Brazil where it was like fish everywhere. So I'm like, okay. I'm just going to have to break my diet. I'm not one of those insane vegans. I can never eat this stuff. I just, I also respect people's cultures. And if that's what they put in their food, then I'm going to deal with it. But mostly it's been plant-based. I haven't really looked back. I'm not going to lie to you. My mother's from South Carolina, Brad. I crave fried chicken. I dream about fried chicken, which is why I used to love George's right, brother. That's right. why I used to love you like good food. There's no way you can grow up on fried chicken and macaroni and, cheese and potato salad and I crave that stuff. It's in your DNA, but I've found vegan versions of stuff. So I've been good. I've been all right. Okay. All right.
0: Do you feel any different health wise? Yeah.
1: It's like you, you're obviously fit. I, I work out, I'll be on my station back later. And I definitely, and you know this, you've been in the food business for a long time. Some of the stuff that we eat, especially the overly processed stuff, is just not good for us. And I felt the difference when I started moving more towards stuff that was healthier. Even if it's chicken or fish, I always at, I used to ask, where did it come from and how was it, how was the animal treated? that kind of stuff. I never thought I'd be that kind of person, but that actually became important to me, especially as I started thinking more about animals and and how they're treated, that kind of thing. So even as a vegan, I don't judge people. People always apologize to me for eating chicken or fish. I'm like, eat your chicken and fish. I have no issue with that. I just think about how we treat the earth more than ever. I think that's the biggest thing, Brad, I've got for being a vegan is how we treat the earth and how we treat each other as human beings. That's what I think about a lot now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And Kevin, too, there is much more discussion these days about gut health and its connection to brain health. So diet is going to be a subject that we're going to be dealing with in the future for quite a bit. All right. So I'm going to put you on the spot and hopefully not piss anybody off. But tell me what your favorite Brooklyn restaurant is of the moment.
1: Woo! You just put me on the spot. (laughs) Wow. I'm embarrassed to admit that I probably, my favorite restaurant is probably in Manhattan. Okay. Fair enough. Hardcore Brooklyn Night, but... That's a great question, Brad. The, my favorite Brooklyn restaurant that I keep going back to, I gotta shout out the V Spot on Park Slope. It's a Spanish Asian fusion vegan restaurant, if that makes any sense. Mm. That's what they are. And the owners are family, their family's from Columbia, South America. I love the food there. It's interesting you ask that question because being someone from the Northeast, like my partner, she's from California, so she's big on Mexican food, obviously, California. And for me, and I'm sure you probably feel the same way having lived in the Northeast. Like, I I love Italian food so much because I'm from Jersey. And there's an argument, does Jersey have better Italian food than New York? But there's an Italian restaurant on East 12th Street in Manhattan that I love. John's at East 12th Street it has been there since 1908, Brad. They still have the same oven from about 1918, 1920. Mm-hmm. And they have a vegan section of the menu, which I'm like, yes. So I don't know if I have a favorite restaurant. There's just certain things that I... Crave there's a new vegan restaurant in Harlem actually called Veganhood that I really dig a lot. It's really good food. This is, I just, and I don't even just go to v- vegan restaurants. Honestly, most of the food that I eat, because of my diet, tends to be Thai, Japanese, Vietnamese. Because what I've found with Asian food, even if there's beef or pork or chicken or fish, they can still remix it over to us who are vegans or vegetarians, which is pretty cool. I just go towards places that fill my palate. And I really love Asian food. Probably more than any other food at this point. That's just honest fact.
0: Kevin, have you been to or heard of a Cadence in the East Village?
1: Yes.
0: Shinari Freeman, the sister, that's yes. the chef there. Yeah, that place.
1: It's amazing. It's amazing. That's what I'm talking about. When I ate her potato salad, I was fainted. I was like, this is <laughs> That's something. good. I love Shannari. I love yeah. Shannari. The food is really good inch. I think she's a rising star.
0: She is, man. We had her on the program. She's phenomenal, man. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah, text her after yeah. we tell her that I did the show. Yeah, please do. Please wow. do. All right. Next one of these. Athletic shoe of choice when you're not exercising. What are you walking in?
1: That's a great question. I love this. You know what I love about this? We're not having these heavy political conversations about the state of America right now. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Oh, okay. You know what? I ran, I was, a, I have to answer it like this. So, I'm a Nike guy, lifelong, but in 2014, 2015, I ran and finished the New York City Marathon. I've run the marathon twice. I became a runner all over again. I ran cross country in high school. I love running. And I went through Nike and other brands. And I settled on New Balance. I never thought I'd become a New Balance guy, but it was just—it's where I landed. I, I and I've been wearing everything I have now is New Balance. Even though I might wear Nike sweats or a Nike hoodie, everything else is Nike. I just—they work for me, and I just started wearing them. Even my hike a lot, Brad, especially in California. You lived out there, you all know what I'm talking about. I love hiking, so I'm looking over there. My there's my New Balance hiking shoes, my my trail <laughs> shoes. Everything is New Balance. New Balance. Pardon me. I just have you tried hokas. H-O-K-A? No, is it good?
0: Oh man, they are. Uh, That's
1: my new shoe. Wow. Walking or running or both?
0: Great for working out, great for walking. It's it give new balance a run for their money. A little more stylish, maybe. Good colors. I got the Nick colors in on mine. I got an orange and blue. So
1: look at that.
0: All right. So last one of these. What is Kevin Powell reading these days? What's on your nightstand?
1: Don't laugh at me, please. (laughs) (laughs) So my partner and I watched Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe biopic, loosely defined on Netflix, and we were really disturbed by it. So I said, I need to go back and do a deeper dive on Marilyn Monroe. And I stumbled into a book from 1986 by Gloria Steinem, my friend, Gloria Steinem, about Marilyn Monroe that is absolutely excellent. I I didn't even know it existed. I was in college at the time. And I certainly, unfortunately, back then I wasn't thinking about literature or feminist literature from women, which is my bad. Now I've sensed that I feel like I've made up for that with a lot of the things that I read. And I just think the book is brilliant. I text Gloria Steinem. I just said, I really thank you for this. because it's actually helping me as I write this biography that I'm on right now of Tupac Shakur. Because I've been trying to find things that really talk about the intersection of being a celebrity and money and then some of the personal traumas that people have. Because the Pac, Tupac, Marilyn Monroe is really in some ways the same story in terms of all the stuff they dealt with and then dying young. So that's what I'm reading right now. And I'm also reading Fanny Shakur's biography. Tupac's mother. So I'm reading both of them. It's an interesting question, but I read a lot of stuff. Every day I'm reading the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, USA Today, BBC stuff, The Guardian stuff. But then I'm always bouncing between books. There's books all around here. I just love reading. I really do. Yeah, I
0: figured as much, man. And who else could pull in Gloria Steinem to the conversation (laughs) but Kevin Powell. So Kevin, let's jump in here, man. As we speak today, we are less than a week away from Hurricane Ian. My wife, her 87-year-old father, and I were in Naples when it struck and ended up spending a day and a night in a shelter. Now, I'd never been through a hurricane, and I can tell you, brother, it was traumatic. Wow! For so The morning of when we finally had to evacuate, the hurricane had altered its path from it was going to hit Tampa Bay, and then all of a sudden it just drifted west and south, which was right in our path, and Naples became the cone there. And it got upgraded from a three to a four, possible five category. And they were talking about a 10 to 12 foot storm surge. Now, we were on the water, so that meant a lot of trouble for us. Of course, the pandemic and the events surrounding the death of George Floyd are still in our rearview mirror. Ian took me, I found myself thinking about significant events during this hurricane. It was traumatic for me. And uh, for my family, I thought about the 1994 Northridge earthquake. I was in LA at the Mm. time, Mm. the riots after the officers were acquitted in the Rodney King trial, the New York City blackout of 77. I was in New York for that. My dad and I parked our car. We had a restaurant called The Cellar on 95th Street. We parked our car on the sidewalk to block the looters that were just rampaging the shops up and down the block. Then there are the significant events that are markers in time and still pack a fair amount of trauma. And just staying in pop culture for the moment, for the sake of our conversation, you mentioned Marvin Gaye at the top. Marvin Gaye's death, Magic's HIV announcement, Mm -hmm. the OJ chase and trial, the murders of Biggie and Tupac, who you've interviewed quite a bit. And I want to talk about that. Kobe's untimely death. So the kind of moments, Kevin, that you remember where you were when you heard about these things or you experienced them. I may be reaching a bit to connect these dots, but after the hurricane, this is what I found myself thinking about in those days following, personally experiencing this destruction, and I'd never seen anything like it. So as someone yourself who keeps an eye and a keen eye on culture, and you talk about trauma, what stands out for you about the collection of pivotal events that I've mentioned?
1: That's a heavy one. I was literally taping The real world in April of 92 when LA exploded. And you can imagine how tense it was around the the loft where we were filming that first season, that very first season of what is arguably the first reality show ever. We know there was American Family on PBS back in the 70s, but I don't think a lot of people realized that show was a reality show at the time. So I was there and I ended up doing a documentary for MTV, Call Straight from the Hood, where we went out there and interviewed White, Black, Latinx, Asian, young people about LA after everything exploded, and that was my first time in California. It was really profound. You mentioned OJ. I remember you will appreciate this. You probably were doing the same thing I was doing. I was watching the Knicks on TV when all of a sudden there was the interruption. There was a what was the car? The Bronco, the Ford Bronco, and there was like, why is this Bronco on the side of the game? It was in a play. I don't know if it was the NBA Finals, Brad, or something like that. I think it was the Finals. Yeah, I think it was the Finals. Yeah, there was that man. I was actually devastated when Kobe's playing went down. I actually called a friend of mine who actually does work for TMZ, won't say their name, cause you know, they seem to have every scoop. And I said, is this real? And they were like, it's real. And I still wouldn't believe it. A month later after Kobe died, February of 2020, before we knew what COVID really was, I went to the Memorial Staples Center with 20,000 plus people and God knows how many thousands of fans outside. I was covering it as a journalist for BET and then I get on a plane and come back to New York. I'm at the airport. I meet someone that I knew from New York and we arranged so we could sit together on the fight. And I noticed that she was pulling out handy wipes and wiping everything down. I was like, what are you doing? She said, you haven't heard? I said, what? Are you, what?" She said, COVID. I said, what does this mean? And boy, did I find out about a week later? And so I say that to say, as you were drawing, throwing these, saying these things, I thought about 9-11, man, Brad, I was at Syracuse University. When the planes, I was literally on the phone on 9-11 with a friend from New York. We were just casually talking. She kept saying, because she lived in a high rise, she said, I think the World Trade Center is on fire. And I said, no. And then as New Yorkers, we tend to be like, okay, there's a fire. Then we keep going. And then she finally said, Kevin, turn your TV on. And as soon as I turned my TV on, the second plane went into the second tower, Brad. It's like I've been working on a Tupac book. I've asked people who are elders and that Where were you when Kennedy got shot? Where were you when Malcolm X got shot? Where were you when Dr. King got shot? It, it's like these markers. And I think this is one reason why Forrest Gump is one of my favorite films, because he literally, these markers become our journey through life. Things that really affected us, traumatized us. I was traumatized by Kobe's death. Brad, I was down there in New Orleans. Me and other folks went down to New Orleans, right? As the last folks were evacuating during Katrina. I was there. It becomes a part of your DNA. It becomes a part of how you process the world, you know, who you were before this happened and who you were after it happened. And I also think it says a lot about who we are, that we can live in a world where something as tragic and ugly as Rodney King can happen, where he's beaten 80 times and all the officers are acquitted. But then there are things like Katrina or 9-11 that can bring us together in very profound ways. And you're right, as I see things like Hurricane Ian happen, I think about the fact that, again, as a vegan, but not just as a vegan, as someone who said, I need to understand what is happening to our earth. The frequency of all these natural disasters makes me wonder, what have we done to our planet where this is just happening over and over again. One of the things that was said to me, Brad, when I was down in the Gulf doing relief work around Katrina, they said that can happen in New York City. And I was like, no way, we're in New York City. You know how we are, Brad. But I realized New York City, except for the Bronx, is a bunch of islands. We're surrounded by water. And lo and behold, 2013 Superstorm Sandy hit. And we know how devastating that was for us in New York City. So. I think that it shows who we are, but it also reminds me, hey, tomorrow's not promised to any of us. You got to do everything you can right now to live the best life possible. Are you practicing love? Are you practicing kindness? Are you trying to make the world a better place? Are you trying to help people understand that hatred and violence and all of this ignorance that we see, these divisions, this this is not what the world should be. I'm from the Malcolm X School. I'm from the Dr. King School. I'm from the School of Telling the Truth. I'm from the school of evolving. I'm from the school of saying, I feel like I can go in a different direction. I've done that several times in my life, Brad. And after I think about all the stuff that you listed, I'm like just thankful that I'm still standing and I hope that I have a long way to go. But it, no matter how long I have, because God only knows what can happen given all the stuff you just laid out. Do something every day that's going to make the world a little bit better and that can help someone else, which is, you asked me what I do in the mornings. I drink water, but I also make sure that I reach out to people and I don't just reach out because I need something or want something. Just, hey, how are you doing? Are you okay? You know what I mean? Because I just think about how many people I've lost, Brad. I've lost people 9-11. I lost people because of Katrina. I think about all those things. Kobe was 41 years old, man. 41. I'm paying attention to all the black males who are not making it past 40 or 50. Just literally in the last couple of years, you're like, wow, these guys are gone. Chadwick bozeman has gone. Kobe Bryant's gone. Michael K. Williams is gone. This is insane stuff. I think about all of that stuff more than ever. You start to think about, honestly, Brad, your mortality than ever and i'm happy i'm very i have a wonderful partner in my life i'm blessed my mom and my aunt the two elders that i'm closest to they're good and they're in a good place in jersey but i don't just think about myself i think about the whole world i'm like man i hate to see anyone suffer it hurt my heart to see the people of florida going through it it hurts my heart to hear what you all had to go through with an 87 year old elder with y'all you know what i mean it's profound to me the stuff that we've had to withstand and how could it not affect you you know what i'm saying And sorry for being long in it, but that's what I think about a lot more than ever.
0: No, man, it was, that was exactly what I was hoping to extract because I'm actually, I feel like I just got a little dose of therapy from you, Kevin, man. and thank you. And I mean that in all sincerity, and that's the value I think that you bring as someone who does have such a keen sense of culture in the moment. And that's exactly how I've been feeling. I read the obituary section yeah. now in the New York times almost daily. And how old was this person? What took them out? What did they do in their life? Did they get it all done? Did they leave stuff on the table? And you start thinking like that. And these kinds of events trigger that for me. Yeah. I want to go back to Vibe's early years, because that was just such a pivotal time to me, man. I was in Los Angeles at the time. I had moved out there in 1989 and Vibe was a precursor to the global force that hip hop was becoming. And along with operating our restaurant, Georgia, in 94, I started working at a place called the Motion Picture Corporation of America. So I'd go to Georgia at night, and then I worked as a producer at MPCA during the day. And they were just coming off the success of Dumb and Dumber. They had a lot of cash flow, and they brought me in with the thought that, oh, we'll get into the Black film business in, in a way that makes sense. They really wanted me to try to recruit Denzel for Jackie Robinson, but I knew that was not going to for another reason. So anyway, this is how it ties to vibe. A guy that does soundtracks, a guy named Ralph Saul brought a project into me and it was us following Biggie around Brooklyn. Again, you got to remember this was 1994, 1995-ish. We're going to follow him around with a camera and just film his life. And the inspiration for that, I tried to convince Brad Cravoy, who was the president of MPCA. I had talked to Biggie. He was willing to give us the soundtrack, 50-50 on the soundtrack, which was going to be huge. So I took Vibe magazine that had Biggie and Faith on the cover in a convertible Cadillac. And I said, man, this is culture that is going to be valuable culturally and monetarily. We've got it. the budget was like 800 grand. I could not convince the white guy, I could not convince him hmm. to pull the trigger. And we didn't do the project. My point in bringing that up was one, how significant Vibe was. It was like the magazine. Remember when we used to get, we would wait for Earth, Wind & Fire albums, Roy <laughs> Air albums. We would wait for them and play every cut. Vibe was like that page for page. You would read every page of Vibe because it was something that pertained to our lives and something significant in it. And it reminds me, man, and I want to I'm going to frame this in the form of a question But in the words of Nas, we in the 90s and finally it's looking good. Hip hop took it to billions. I knew we would. So what happened, Kevin, that catapulted the music into such a cultural worldwide phenomenon and talk about what vibe meant in that equation,
1: if you would? That's a great question. And I'm just really enjoying this conversation, Brad. Thank you, because it's very thoughtful. Thank you. Wow. As a kid who used to party at New York clubs in the 80s, like Latin Quarters and Rooftop and even like, Leviticus. The, yeah. Area- Clintleys, All of that stuff. I saw hip hop. I saw it. I remember they kept saying that hip hop was a fad. It wasn't going to last. This break dancing phenomenon, this graffiti phenomenon. I remember how they talked about Basquiat. I even I just watched the Andy Warhol documentary on Netflix, which I think everyone should watch. Phenomenal. Yeah. It's really deep. You really get a, a look into New York City and just our culture from the 60s to the 80s. But I, I got to shout out Quincy Jones first and foremost because he had- one, because Quincy had kids that were of my age range. Shout out to QD3 and Rashida and Kadada and all of his kids. They were hip hop heads. And I'll never forget, Brad, when I heard Quincy Jones was doing a magazine, it's Quincy Jones. And I'm like, I'm a little freelance writer. got my little part-time job at the New school, my little part-time job. I was teaching at the high school program at NYU on Saturdays. I was writing for Rolling Stone and everyone, I wrote for everyone. Interview magazine. This is before. People need to understand. There was no social media. There was no internet. I was literally faxing articles all over the place. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then I just wanted to have, read honestly, a little record review and vibe. I wrote a piece about growing up in Jersey City and my experiences in Jersey. And Jonathan Van Meter, the editor that Quincy hired to be the editor-in-chief, read the piece. And remember, 1992 was the year that Naughty by Nature had a huge song called OPP. It was a mega hit. And Jonathan asked me if I wanted to write an article about trechenoid by nature. I was like, heck yeah. He didn't tell me that Albert Watson was shooting the cover, the famous photographer Albert Watson. And he didn't tell me that my story was going to be the very first cover story for Vibe magazine. So you can imagine, think about it for me as a young kid. I'm in my twenties back in the nineties, Brad. In 1992, several significant things happened. One, I went out of the country for the first time. I went to Paris and I was so ignorant. I I took a duffel bag. I had no idea how to pack. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But I went with another writer, we went to a literary conference in Paris, and I got back, and the next thing I know, I'm filming the first season of MTV's The Real World, and while we're filming The Real World, I'm writing the cover story for Vibe magazine. I had no idea. Then fast forward to September of 92 when it came out, there's Quincy Jones in the media saying, yeah, we got young writers like Kevin Powell. I was like, this is Quincy Jones, who did the soundtrack for... Color Purple, all these TV shows. Everything. But I'm also a kid. There's Bruce Lee poster behind me and Charlie Chaplin poster behind me. There's a Beatles poster. I'm a pop culture kid. I've always been a pop culture kid. How, how could you not? And what I loved, the vision for Vibe was that we wanted to merge Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, The Village Voice. We wanted to have excellent writing, but we also wanted to present the Snoop Dogs, the Tupacs, the Tretches in ways that we had never seen Black men, honestly, or, or cultural figures represented. And it was very clear to me that this culture was here to stay. Hip-hop for us was what jazz was 100 years ago, the 1920s, with the jazz age. Is what rock and roll became in the 50s and 60s, what Motown was, what Stax Records was. But it was uniquely ours as young people who were coming of age at that time. And it was really, it went so fast, Brad, but it was really, it was surreal. And it's interesting you're asking this because I literally just finished, it's coming out next April, 2023, a collection from over 30 years of my writings. And a lot of it is from Vibe magazine because I was I forgot how much I wrote for the magazine. I'm not even talking about the cover stories. I got in there and I was just hungry, man. And I was like, man, I gotta do like Langston Hughes. I got my favorite writer. I gotta just write. I just gotta keep writing. And it got me I got to meet people like you. And I was I had never been to California before. It opened my world up and I began to realize, man, this culture, not just hip-hop, but just black culture in general, is American culture. It is the soul of American culture. And I love all people. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart, but it gave me a pride and who I was and where I came from, that I just, I was like, this is now something that's global, it's worldwide. And because of my years at Vibe, I got to curate, produce, Brad the very first exhibit on the history of hip-hop with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by the late 90s. It really, it was life-changing for me. I owe such a debt to Quincy Jones. And what really touches my heart, you mentioned at the beginning that I'm the Toni Morrison writer-in-residence at Prairie View University, Prairie View A&M University in Texas. It would not have happened without the opportunity I got from Vibe. And what really hit me when I got there, the woman who's the chief public publicity officer for the school said, I still have all my Vibe magazines yeah. organized from the 1990s. I get that all over the country. I had no idea, Brad, no idea that people saw the magazine like that.
0: Well, Kevin, one of the things that we heard that really frustrated us in the early and mid nineties in the film business was that black films wouldn't sell overseas. Yeah. And that was how film financing was accomplished in a lot yeah. of cases. And yet we were watching magazines like Vibe pushed the culture forward in ways that were definitely appealing to people overseas. We were seeing what was happening with Snoop and people that you mentioned that went out on tour and were filling arenas up overseas and we could not understand yeah. why our culture couldn't be packaged in film and sold the same way. What are your thoughts about it? vibe definitely accelerated how we presented to the world that, that culture. What's your thought on that?
1: During my vibe years, which was 92 to 96, my first poetry book came out I don't know how I convinced Keith Klainscales. Shout out to Keith Klainscales, who was the president of Vibe at the time. I said, Keith, I need to go to London for a month. because hey, I was writing a lot. So I went to London and I had never, I don't think I had never been to the UK. And it was then and there that I realized how big Vibe was because man, and not just from my black Brits, white Brits, all Brits were like, yo, we love Vibe magazine. And that blew me away. I was like, y'all read this over here. Across the pond, did y'all say? <laughs> right. I was in Birmingham, I was in Manchester, I was in London, and I was, it was mind-blowing. And little did I know that I was hearing that people were reading Vibe in South Africa, all over the world, in Japan. To your point, Brad, I feel like Vibe, the success of Vibe, because at the time, that you're describing, it was the fastest growing pop culture magazine in American history. It foreshadowed the success of Black Panther with Chavik Bozeman and Ryan Coogler as director years later. That, again, that this kind of film, that this kind of art cannot be... It's not going to be digested by, I just think that's racist. I just think it's racism to say something like that. Black Panther made a billion dollars. It made a billion dollars. I just think the real issue is, do we get the opportunities to have a restaurant on Melrose, to make films that can reach different audiences, to create these kinds of magazines? And what Vibe gave me was a battery in my back, as we say in hip-hop, that anything is possible after this, man, because I didn't know that was possible. And it really, it changed my life forever, man. I think we do ourselves a disservice, no matter who we are, if we try to act as if all cultures aren't relevant, aren't powerful. Shout out again to Ambassador Shabazz, who's on here. Her father, when I read the autobiography for the first time, and I have a poem called When I Found Malcolm X, and I talk about how I cried after I finished that book, because for the first time, it was his life story, which changed my life forever. But it was also how her father, Malcolm X, recalled history as he's referencing Billie Holiday and Count Basie and you know, the Garvey movement and, all, and Harlem, 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 Brad. You know what I'm saying? That's the Mecca. That's the Mecca. And I think there's a reason why people came to Harlem, why people come to Brooklyn, why they go to Baldwin Hills and South LA because they're looking for something that they've been told they shouldn't find. And I'm like, yo, black culture is invaluable to this country. Black people are invaluable to this country. You know what I'm saying? In every way possible. The food, music, dance, fashion, you name it. And racism makes people say things like, no one's going to go see Boomerang. It still bothers me to this day. I had this conversation with Reginald Hudlin when he said that people still think that. He told me about some of the reviews that they got a Boomerang, how they were just dissing the movie. No one wants to see that. My like, Boomerang is a classic film. It's a classic film, but what's wrong with seeing Black people as professionals? And you know what's funny? I remember reading reviews about Boomerang, and then maybe a year or two later, I got to go to Ebony Magazine in, in Chicago, and I was like, wow, this does exist. Black professionals who actually own a whole building, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) A whole building. (laughs) And and so what I say to people, Brad, all the time, whether you're African-American, West Indian, Croatian, Ukrainian, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Chinese, Japanese, Jewish, Muslim, whatever your background is, women of any identity, queer folks or non-gender conforming, you actually do need to see yourself because when you see yourself, you then know what's possible. You know what I mean? You know what's possible. And for example, when I read again Malcolm's autobiography and I got through the end of it, I was like, I now know what's possible for me because of the example that he left behind with this book. And that's the same thing with film. You know what I mean? Think about home. All the folks who got turned on to the Ambassador's father because of the Malcolm X films. We need to see these films. We need to see the Woman King. We need to see the Woman King. We need to see the Woman King. You know what I mean? We need to see that black women can be anything. But unfortunately. We still have folks that think that we have to be in this kind of box, dangerous and unacceptable. And it perpetuates all of these myths that keep us separated from each other.
0: Well, Kevin, that's why I celebrate guys like you, man, that chronicle our culture and our lives so that we have something. You talk about the lady who at A&M that has all of her Vibe magazines. That's what you offer to us, man, the ability mm. to go back and reflect and recount where we were and how we were living and who we are. You reminded me of something. We had not a great review from the L.A. Times when we opened Georgia. And unfortunately, in my world, there were no black food writers back then. So the context that we were opening up on the heels of Rodney King, the, the city was just it was black versus white. And it was not a great environment to open up a restaurant like that. But we did. And what we were celebrating, our culture, our food, she didn't get it. Now, I've since had a conversation with her and we revisited that after the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Ruth Rachel, had a different view about it. But the point is that now there are Black food writers. Now there is a unique, a different perspective that's covering our lives, covering our movies, covering our books. I just encourage you, man, keep doing what you're doing. I think about you and someone like Nelson George who keep eyes on our culture And keeping it domestically for a minute, both of you have bounced between New York and LA quite a bit. We've talked about that. Bounced between LA and New York since the nineties that I know of. And while there was the quote feud between East and West, What has followed, maybe beginning with certainly in the music industry, Russell Simmons and Andre Harrell setting up shop on the West Coast, has been a growing appreciation for the West Coast lifestyle. Now you've got Jay-Z out there, Puffy. I saw the front end of this when we opened Roxbury in 1989 as the Black theater world was moving West Coast for opportunities in the entertainment industry. But for those of us from New York will always be home. But I'm curious your view of how linked the two coasts are now, and do cities like Miami and or Atlanta factor into the cultural conversation?
1: Wow, man, you got me thinking on my toes. <laughs> That's a good thing. I have to say this first, Brad. I don't know if I ever said this to you, but I do need to say this. I- You were one of the people, because I love Georges, let me say that. Folks like you and Andre Harrell and Russell, who were entrepreneurs, because I was not an entrepreneur, that was major to me as a Black boy, especially coming from the hood, single mother, whole nine, seeing dynamic Black males like you in ownership. I have to say that was really important to me. I left a great impression. I need to say that. And I love, I'm glad you mentioned Nelson. Uh, Nelson George and Greg Tate. Rest in peace, Greg Tate, legendary writer, Village Voice, among other places. And he wrote for Vive as well. I religiously read Nelson and Greg out of all the writers who were about 10 years older than me, 10 years ahead of me. And they showed me that anything was possible as a writer. So I have to acknowledge the people who came before me. And Tate and Nelson were those folks in a lot of ways. And then I just fell in love with the West Coast. My partner's from San Diego. I'm like West Coast all the way. And My lifestyle, Brad, I'm a vegan. I'm a hiker. I love the water now. You know what I mean? I was a dude, the first time I went hiking in LA, don't laugh at me, Brad. I wore my Timberland boots from New York City <laughs> and I went hiking and my feet were throbbing, you know what I'm saying? I didn't know. And the first time I went to a beach, I wore baggy basketball shorts, like I was playing for the Knicks or the Nets. you know what I'm saying? I think that when you come from New York, I love New York, did the energy, there's nowhere like New York City in the world. And I've been to London, Paris, Tokyo. I just, I'm biased, but I don't think there's anywhere like New York City, but I think what the West Coast has offered us is an opportunity to see a place with more space, natural, incredible natural beauty, you know what I'm saying? And just, and opportunities, opportunities. And that's why I think a lot, of us, a lot of us have gone back and forth. I think Miami's dope. I was just there. I've been there many times. I've been to Atlanta many times. I wasn't just in Atlanta, in Miami, but I've been there in the recent past. But I can see why a lot of New Yorkers gravitate towards Miami. But I think it's that kind of historic thing between New York, and L.A., which is both some of us, we either love each other or we hate each other. I keep thinking about those old Woody Allen movies or Spike Lee's comments, you know, how people, New York filmmakers tend to have this bias towards New York. But I think that uh, California has much to offer. And I really have enjoyed getting to know that state. And I do think that Atlanta, because of Tyler Perry and what he's done there has become an artistic mecca. I've been in L.A. Reid and Babyface, and I mean, it really hit me with Atlanta back in the 90s when L.A. Reid had his 40th birthday party and everybody you can name showed up at his birthday party. It was incredible, you know what I'm saying? And I think Miami, for us on the East Coast especially, it's just easier to get to than to go all the way out West. And So Miami's always gonna be a haven, a mecca for a lot of folks, especially New Yorkers coming down the East Coast, but the West Coast, Yeah, there was a historic beast, but that hurt my heart. And that's what I'm grappling with now, how to write about it as I write the Tupac biography, which will be out within a year and a half or so, Brad. I'm working hard on that book. You mentioned traumas earlier. I've interviewed Biggie. That cover that you talked about with Biggie and Faith, I did the video portion of it for Vibe magazine because we used to do something for HBO called Vibe 5. So I was in the middle of all that stuff. I was writing all these cover stories. I'm looking at the covers right now. I did four covers on Tupac. Three of them were for Vibe, including a live from Death Row cover story. Then I was in Vegas when he died. And I um I didn't go to the West Coast for a while after that because I mean, he dies. And then six months later, Biggie is killed in LA. And it was just a lot to deal with, man. But then I began to realize, Kev, that you were just reporting this the best you could. No one could have predicted it was going to turn into this crazy East Coast, West Coast thing. Um, and I had to make peace with that. Over time, I got comfortable with going back out to the West Coast. I love California. I love New York. And I don't believe that we should diss wherever people are. I don't I, that's one of the things that hurt me the most when I saw And still you hear people saying ignorant stuff about folks in the South or about the Midwest or people who were in New York and people hate; yeah, they, they say crazy stuff about New York. We don't have any trees, which is a lie. We have no grass, which is a lie. We don't, no one speaks to each other. Some of us actually do speak to each other. And so I think it also like with the East Coast, West Coast and all that tension made me think about more than ever is do I want to participate in all these crazy stereotypes about people, man? And I try not to do that wherever I go in the world.
0: Yeah, talk about, I want to come back to Tupac, actually, because I don't know if anyone has chronicled his life or spent more time talking to him from the perspective that you have than you. But before we do that, Kevin, I want to talk about your current project, the documentary that you've written, directed, produced, and you also narrate. The film is titled, When We Free the World. And you opened by sharing some background on your very challenging home life, man. I had no idea about your life growing up as a young boy, you and your mom in Jersey city and it was rough stuff, but definitely worth hearing about and The question, what does it mean to be a man, toxic manhood versus healthy manhood and the relationship between fathers and sons. I had a great one with my dad, but not without some challenges and the trauma that he brought along and the violence towards my mom and some of the habits I could have picked up on and glad I abandoned. But can you give a synopsis, man? I saw some of this film. It's brilliant. Can you give a synopsis of the film and why you decided to explore what it means to be a man and specifically a black man?
1: Wow. And thank you for your honesty, Brad, What you just shared, because the film will be out in June of 23. Fingers crossed. We're going to tie it into Father's Day weekend, Juneteenth, Pride, a range of things. Because I've been exploring my entire life. And I really, because my father, my mother and father never married. My father, I saw three times until I was about eight years old. And then he said to my mother that she lied to him that he wasn't my father. And that devastated me. And I found myself looking for father figures. And that's why I keep coming back to Malcolm X, because I was the first man that I, connected with, even though it was through a book that changed my life and made me see what was possible. I realized that I've spent a lot of my life, even when I work around Tupac, hip-hop is a male-centered art form. has been Obviously, we've had amazing women like MC Light and Queen Latifah and Lauren Hill, but it's been a lot of Black males trying to figure out ways to use their voice, and some of it good, some of it not so good and healthy. But I just said I wanted to do something that really was going to speak to this. And even though it's specific to Black males, when we're talking about it, I really feel like the themes in the film are universal because we deal with suicide, mental health, domestic violence, which you just talked about, violence against each other. We deal with and history. We talk about the Me Too movement, about Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, and Till. And we don't just talk about the challenge, but we also have for all this saying very basic stuff like how important it is to be emotionally available for your children, not just that you're there and you're taking care of them, but do you actually talk with your children? Do you actually listen to your children? Things that I think some of us take for granted. And one brother, Byron Hurt, the great filmmaker, is in the film. He talks about the manhood box, Brad, that a lot of us end up in. And I was in that box. I, I grew up, I'm a massive sports head fan to this day. I played every sport imaginable, video games, the whole nine yards. When you said 1977, New York City blackout, my mind immediately went to the New York Yankees and Reggie Jackson in the World Series. You know what I'm saying? And that was my world. That was my my, my world. And I was I ended up growing up being a very patriarchal, sexist male until I changed and was challenged by quite frankly, a lot of women. And that was the turning point when I began to read Audre Lorde and read Bell Hooks and read Nikki Giovanni and Toni Morrison and folks like that and Gloria Steinem and Eve Insler, who's now known as V, the creator of the Vagina Monolog, is one of my dear friends and mentors, because I realized, how, how can you live in a country where half the population identifies as women? Half the world's population identifies as women And girls, and you don't know anything about half the population, which means I didn't even know anything about my own mother. But also, to your point, I also was engaging in the same bad habits that I was seeing around me. I was being told as a boy growing up, Brad, that, you know, boys, by the time you're seven, eight, nine years old, which is ridiculous, you should be having sex. And it's ridiculous the stuff we were doing. growing around school, grabbing girls, body parts. That sexual assault, I realized later, was preparing some of us, not all of us, but preparing some of us for rape culture. And at a certain point, again, if I can bring it back to Malcolm X, one of the most critical lessons I took from the ambassador's father is have the courage to change, have the courage to change, have the courage to say, I need to go in a different direction. And so for me, it's been a constant journey with that. And the film is really that. I'm proud of it, Brad. We're still finishing it. I need to shout out the Knight Foundation there in South Florida, where y'all are, you and Linda are, because they're actually one of our supporters for the film. The Ford Foundation's on board. I can't say the corporate partners, but we got some significant corporate partners that are coming aboard. And our goal is to really make this not just a film, but there'll be a study and resource guide. There'll be a series of town hall meetings all around the country, including in Miami. At some point, we'd love to have you be a part of that, Brad, seriously. Absolutely, because we need your voice and what you've experienced and what you've lived through and your accumulated wisdom. And we're going to really talk about stuff because also there's all this violence out there. And I think about all that stuff that, that, what is it really to be a man? And a lot of times when I do workshops and I've been doing it for years, Brad, about manhood, I'll ask an all-male audience, it doesn't matter the race or culture, what is a man? And they'll say things like, take care of the household, take care of the family, accountable, responsible. And my response is always the same. You just said what my mother has done. Now, can you tell me what a man is? And then there's silence. Wow. Wow. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I think that we need to really, the point is, how do we redefine this thing in a way that is healthy for us, where we're not hurting ourselves, hurting other people. If we're straight men, not hurting folks who are LGBTQ+, you know, how we're not hurting people who identify as women, how we're not hurting the earth. That's what I think about more than ever. And I'm still a sports fan. I'm a diehard sports fan. But it's definitely shifted how I view sports and certain sports in particular that are excessively violent. You know what I mean? And I keep thinking about what happened to two of the other the Dolphins quarterback. I just, yeah. I think about all this stuff now in a very different kind of way. And again, how I treat the earth because I don't want to be one of the people destroying the earth. And so I think about that as I define manhood. When I was at Prairie View A&M in Texas last week, I noticed the men who were coming up to me. These young men are looking for answers. Your honesty touched me, what you said about your father. It takes a lot of courage to say that. We can still love our parent or parents. I love my mother, but I also have to admit there was traumas that were passed to me from her. So I have a responsibility to keep the good stuff that she gave me, like this bad stuff. I can't carry this with me for, I don't want to hurt anybody else. I don't want to hurt anyone else. Yeah.
0: Kevin, let's stay on young people for a minute because in the film you frame a quote by a young brother, actually a teenager, Alfonso Williams IV, who happens to be from your home state of New Jersey. And the quote reads, quote, being a black man in America is a life filled with reflection, perseverance, and success but also filled with trying to build off a past of significant struggle, discrimination, and hardship. And quote, what about that quote struck you, man? What made you decide to frame that and open with
1: that? And I'll tell you, Brad, we intentionally, for the film, there's nine chapters. So literally, we have a quote for each chapter from a teenager, Alfonso, all the way up to a 90-something Black man. It's really beautiful to see the trajectory of a Black man male expression. Because he's trying to figure it out. He's 18 years old. He just graduated from high school. He has a father in his life. He has a mother in his life. But he's trying to figure it out. But he also has been exposed at 18. If you're born in 2004, which he was, and it's 2022... He's already lived through Hurricane Katrina. He's lived through Barack Obama's president. He's also lived through the Trump years. And he's lived through George Floyd. He watched the George Floyd video. And he's a Black man who's going to college right now. He's trying to figure all of this out. How do I be safe? The trip, Brad, that we even have to think about this stuff in 2022, about to be 2023. But the same thing that he's talking about is what I feel in my 50s, honestly, in spite of the resume and whatever accolades. I mean, I'm proud of my career, but I also... Brad, think that you and I, people like us, all of us, have a right to also feel safe, to feel like we're not going to have something happen to us simply because of who we are. You know what I mean? We should have the right to live in any neighborhood we want, to send our children to whatever school we want to send them to. We should be able to go to a store and get some Skittles and some iced tea, Trayvon Martin, and go back to our gated community without feeling that we're going to get killed for just being out there. You know what I'm saying? I should not. I've literally been to all 50 states in this country. I've driven across country. I've flown to places. But I've never, as much as I have in the last decade or so, thought about where I am in my own safety because of everything that's happened in the last few years. And I think that's what Alfonso Williams fourth is saying, this 18-year-old boy that opens up the film. I want to feel safe. I want to feel safe as someone who identifies as a man of color, a black male.
0: Yeah, that that really touched me, man. Thank you for exploring that a little more deeply. As we mentioned, you also raised, and I don't want to give too much away because the film is coming out and, of course, we want people to see it, but it was just so deep, man, what I saw. There, there's a couple of more subjects I just wanted to dive into while I have you. And you raised a question, as we talked about, about the definition of manhood and where it even comes from, and that how some societies in ancient Africa, Native American communities that were female centric, right? And you say that when quote, the concept of racism or what some call white supremacy was created and combined with money and placing males, including certain kinds of white males above all else. The modern definitions of manhood exploded in ways that resulted in the enslavement of Africans and other peoples, the genocide of Native Americans and other indigenous people, and the foundation of manhood was locked in that included violence in all forms, and yes, stealing everything from land to the right to vote. Kevin, you go further to link the behavior we see today, like mass shootings, rape culture, and toxic behavior, and social media. So there's so much to unpack there. We don't have the time to do that here, but I just wanted to explore
1: a little bit more what you mean by the foundation of manhood. And again, this is coming from my many years of sitting at the feet of women like Eve Ensler, who know, now is known as V, creator of the vagina Monologues, Bell Hooks, who just passed last December, Gloria Steinem, Nikki Giovanni, other women, hell, my mama, my mother's 79. And because of what my father did to her, she still to this day says that all men are no good in her Southern, South Carolina dialect. I think that if we want to understand, Brad, if we go to a doctor and something's going on with our body, we're going to ask the doctor, what, you know, can you do an analysis? Can we do an examination? And so I think if I look at our society, let's just focus on our country for a second, America. If 95 percent, at least of all the cases of violence, domestic violence, are men doing it to women, that's a problem that's around manhood. If 95 percent of the cases of mass shootings happening all around the country are men committing these mass shootings from Florida to New York to Texas to California, that's a problem. You know what I mean? If one out of four folks who identify as women and girls in this country, or one out of three on the planet, which is over one billion women and girls, are the victims of some form of sexual violence in their lifetimes at the hands of folks who identify as men, that's a problem. And it's in pandemic proportions. And I think that it says that we've got to think about what is happening here and as we were putting together the film and you're talking about the history chapter which is the first ha- chapter of the film we asked the question well, has it always been like this and we know if we look at indigenous cultures this matriarchal cultures that were women led women centered same thing in ancient african civilizations there's plenty of that in different parts of the world but at some point the combination of this greed for money like the transatlantic slave trade for example and power led to men dominating everything. And I think that all of us have been affected by it, no matter what our identities are. It's not enough for me to say it was rich, heterosexual white males. No, all of us are affected by it. I don't have a problem with people wanting to be successful. I don't have a problem with people wanting to have money. I like to have money and I like to be successful. You know what I mean? I like my amenities of life, but I don't want to do it in a way, Brad, where my manhood quote unquote is literally stepping on, squashing, hurting people just to achieve things, if that makes any sense. And that's what the film is exploring. It's, a, it's really a deep dive. Why is this okay that this is happening? I don't know about you all, but like when I go to speak at colleges and universities, including to Prairie View University, A&M, that's what, why is it that I have to look for the X's Because I'm afraid someone might come out with a gun, specifically someone who's known as a male. You know what I mean? Why is it that Salman Rushdie can go do a talk in upstate New York and then he gets almost stabbed to death by a male? You know what I mean? The list is endless. And so I think We do have to question it. It's it's no different than how Black Lives Matter. When that exploded in the aftermath of the George Floyd video, many of us in this country who identify as white had to do a serious reckoning. There's been a lot of questions, you know, about where did I get these definitions of whiteness from? What was I before I became white? Well, you were Italian, you were Jewish, you were Irish, you were all these different things. And then someone said that we're going to make sure you come under this banner of whiteness and then everyone else is gonna be other, and we're gonna put you in a privileged position, and then everyone else is gonna be unprivileged or underprivileged. The same thing, Brad, exists for manhood. We, who are straight men, are put in this privileged position of we're everything. We're the dominant group. And then everyone else, women, queer folks, disabled folks who may not play sports, who may not be tall, who may not be a certain type of male, are less than, are underprivileged. And so I think all of that, if we really believe in justice and equality, if we really believe in democracy and freedom for all people, Then why is it okay to live in any society where there's nonstop violence, where there's these great discrepancies between who has and who does not have, where people are allowed to hurt each other because you know what? I'm white, you're black. I'm a man, you're a woman. I'm straight, you're gay. And we can go down the list of stuff, but it's like I'm saying, and what we're saying in this film, as we bring together all these different types of male expression, straight, gay, trans, gendered men, disabled men, and formerly incarcerated men, college educated men, fathers, older, younger, Let's find the stuff that's good and powerful that we are doing and that we have done. But then what are the things that actually have been hurting us and hurting society? And this is not to blame Black men because we're just saying Black men are an example. But this is really a film for everyone at the end of the day. It really is. Just like vibe was for everyone, as you were talking about earlier. I believe that a lot of folks of different backgrounds are going to come away from the film really thinking about it. Just how you had the wherewithal, Brad, to say, my father, but here's this part about my father, what he did to my mother. We're just saying to men, we need to be honest. We need, about, we need to be honest about what hurts us. I've been in therapy for years, Brad, and I realized that most of us as men are generally straight men specifically, because that's what I know best. We're encouraged to talk about sports, about sex or women, and money. That's what we talk about. Most of us are not even encouraged to have conversations beyond those things. And if you start to think about it like that, and you think about it, there's five or six things that always destroy men, usually straight men. It's sex, it's money, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's violence, and it's ego. It's the same things that always take down folks who identify as men. I've been thinking about this for a very long time and I've written about it, but I said, man, more people are going to watch something than they're actually going to read something. And I'm saying this as an author of 15 books and that's how the film began to develop. And honestly, I got to shout out Beyonce, Brad. This is the last thing I'll say. When I watched Lemonade about five or six years ago, the thing that came out of my head was like, I really want to do something like this for black males because this is powerful. The conversation that Black women are having around this film, just like the conversation Black women had around for colored girls, around the color purple, around the writings of Bell Hooks. I'm like, hey, Black men, why can't we do this as well? Why can't we create conversations that help us to redefine ourselves too? Man, I
0: love, Kevin, that you start off the film with the question. We're asking a question in search of an answer and providing information and facts and history and the constructs of society and racism and patriarchy and all of these things and how they weave into what we're talking about here today and protecting the earth and how it's just this film, man, I think you are really, you've done some brilliant work with this and fingers crossed. Yeah, man. And I think everybody is going to be paying attention to this. There's so much there. So let's take a big turn. We've got a couple more things to cover before I let you go. You recently interviewed, you sat down with the oldest person that you've ever had an opportunity to speak with in an interview, a hundred and four-year-old Miss India Edwards, she happens to be from your hometown of Jersey city. You did a piece for, for Ebony magazine and you included in that she was born in 1918. So the Spanish flu and on from there, she's seen a lot in her lifetime. She's also a poet as are you. So Kevin, you've interviewed a lot of famous people yet in the opening of this interview, you talk about how nothing has excited you as much as the opportunity to sit down with India Edwards. Well, why is that? What was it about sitting in front of her that uh, moved you that
1: way? It's interesting. She's not the oldest person I've ever met. I met someone in the nineties who was 115, which blew my mind in South Carolina. And I took a picture with her and she was flirting with me. She kept it real. She was born in the 1800s and she had outlived her, I don't remember the woman's name, I gotta look it up, but she had outlived like all her children and everything. But I always said if I had an opportunity to meet someone who was past 100 again and would be willing to do an interview with me, I had to do it. Just for history, I love history. I love American history, I love African-American history, I love world history. I just love history of all kinds. And as I met her, I think I said in the introduction to the Ebony piece, I met her at a pre-Juneteenth event in Jersey and back in May. She was dynamic and articulate and she just started talking about stuff from different parts, I like the Great Depression. Okay, here's World War II, here's Vietnam, here's the Civil Rights Movement. I was at the March in Washington in 63, I was like, yo, I got to interview this woman and she's, Miss India Edwards is amazing. She's a, she's a community person. She was a social worker. She did work in the community for years. And so she cared about people. And I just thought it was fascinating. I think for me, the first thing was that she was born in the Spanish flu, the last great global pandemic. And here she is living through the COVID. And then she also saw Barack Obama, but she also, she literally told me she could, she was so close to Dr. King at the March on Washington in 63 that she could touch his feet. As I think is said in the interview. But then she has, there's photos of her with Barack Obama. So here's Dr. King talking about the aspirations. I have a dream. And then here's the first black president of the United States, Barack Obama. He's witnessed it both. How many people can say that? And I just was determined to, to sit with her and in my hometown of Jersey City. Shout out to Jersey City, the library system there, which is so important to me. It's part of the reason why I'm a writer. My mom took me to the library when I was eight years old and I fell in love with books and that it was on from there, but I, they're doing an oral history of Jersey City. And I just think that No matter who you are as a people, no matter what your identity or identities, we should go to our elders. We should get the stories of our elders in some form. Video, audio, both photos, gather photos, digitize stuff. Because back to the film for a second, Brad, one of the things that has been most exciting to me about putting together this film on Black manhood, Black fatherhood, we literally have images of Black males from the 1840s to 2022. Hmm. Think about that for a second. You know what I mean? And it's some powerful images. You see all Black males in every war, every kind of military uniform, black males at colleges, black males working in the community. These things tell stories. And so I just thought about Miss Edwards and her birthday coming up. God willing, I'll be at her birthday party. I was like, we can't let these folks go without getting their stories. We need to tell the stories of our, that's how we tell the stories of our people, of any people. I have friends, Brad, I'll end it here, who are living in New York City. I have many friends who are Ukrainian. And we know what's happening in the Ukraine right now with this awful and unjust war by Putin in Russia. And I'm thinking about the images that I've seen. I was just in the UK and London and Liverpool earlier this year, and there was a lot of Ukrainians there. They're moving around Europe. You see the elders. I'm like, who's going to preserve these stories and tell people what happened? What happened? It's powerful to me. It's no different than like in the African-American community. You'll hear the stories about segregation and the stories that have been passed down about slavery. And in the Jewish community, you'll hear the stories about immigration and you'll hear the stories about the Holocaust. If we don't tell these stories, if we don't hold these stories, we're going to be repeating the same stuff over and over again as Santiana said, and I think history has to be told. Ambassador Shabazz, my favorite Malcolm X quote, history is a people's memory, and without it, we're demoted to the lower animals. That hits.
0: Kevin, I can't let you go without talking a little bit about Tupac and the time that you spent with him. I know you're working on the biography. I don't know if anybody's chronicled or, or sat with him more times than you have. You've met with him when he was incarcerated. Obviously, an amazing cultural figure, brilliant lyricist, charismatic, all of that. But what struck you about Tupac as someone who spent time up close with him and asked him questions that occurred to you to ask?
1: I'm only doing this because you're Brad Johnson and I got a lot of love for you, but I don't talk about it. I'm trying not to give away as much of the book as possible. What I'll say is I met Pac in the summer of 1993. I was a fan before that because of his performance in Juice, which just blew me away. And in the first article I wrote on Tupac, for Vibe Magazine, I said that, little did I know, I said that he was the James Dean of the hip hop generation. Little did I know, considering James Dean died at 24, Pac died at 25, and both tragically. I interviewed Tupac in Atlanta, in New York in jail, in LA, and then I, when he got shot the second time there, I was in Vegas, like everyone else holding my breath, hoping that he was gonna make it, and then he was gone. You mentioned Denzel earlier, Brad. I was literally in my hotel room in Vegas. I turned on the TV to HBO, and it was Denzel as Malcolm X, Literally, just as the Sam Cooke song comes on, as Denzel, as Malcolm X, is on his way to the Audubon Ballroom. And that's when I got the call that Pac was dead. And so it's been a a deep experience for me to carry around all these years. All the audio tape interviews that I have of him that no one's ever heard. All the notes and things, the files and stuff like that. Everyone's been asking me for years, when are you going to write the book? When are you going to write the book? Only you can write the book, Kevin. It's just a lot of pressure, as you can imagine. Sure. But I had to have some distance emotionally and spiritually, Brad. Had to. I'm really excited to see the new Spielberg movie, The Fablement, is coming on because he's finally done a film, fictionalized, of course, about his childhood of him wanting to be a filmmaker. And what you used the word trauma earlier, Brad, so you know what I'm saying. It's like sometimes when you've experienced very traumatizing things, you need a little bit of distance to heal. And if I can be fully honest with you all in your audience, you know, Tupac died in September 96. Biggie got killed in, in, in March of 1997. I probably, I spent the rest of the nineties in a deep depression. I drank heavily. I don't know if I was an alcoholic, but I drank heavily and I drank nonstop for about five, six years, up until nine 11 and nine 11 actually shocked me out of drinking. I was in the two thousand ones and I have only had, I don't drink. I had part of me so I became a vegan to be really honest with you because I was very depressed about what happened to Tupac and Biggie. And cause this one thing, Brad, you were talking about these historical markers. Americans who are old enough, they remember where they were when Kennedy got killed. Both Kennedys. They remember where they were when Dr. King got killed. I, as a kid, I'm a little bit younger than you. I was, I didn't understand why Ronald Reagan was shot, why the Pope was shot. I didn't understand why John Lennon was killed. I didn't understand why Marvin Gaye was killed. Now, I still was a teenager when Marvin Gaye got killed. But now, then, all of a sudden, I'm in my 20s. I'm 30 now. When that happened, when Biggie and Tupac got killed, I was like, damn, this is my Jimi Hendrix, my Janis Joplin. This is my John Lennon. This is my Marvin Gaye. And I happen to know these people. The book is an exploration of Tupac's life, but it's also exploration of America through the lens of his life. Because I think when you have a figure like a Marilyn Monroe, a James Dean, a Tupac, a Malcolm X, they're so much bigger than just who they are. They represent a slice of history. You know what I mean? And so I want to say to folks as they read the book, look at all that was happening around Tupac. Now, it's not just him, but look what was happening around him what was happening for him, what was happening to him, that shaped who he became. And I'm taking it very seriously, Brad. It's, I work on it every day. I think about it every day. It'll get, it'll finally will get done. It, It almost took me 30 years after Pac got killed, but sometimes that's just the way it works, man.
0: Not to put any more pressure on you than you already have put on yourself. I think his legacy is in the best of hands with you. And I wonder, Kevin, what you think, if my math is correct, if Tupac were alive today, he would be 51. What would a middle-aged Tupac be? Who would he be?
1: What's interesting about that question, Brad, I, I actually think Tupac was going to be a great actor. I really believe that he would have followed in the footsteps of Denzel Washington and Sydney Portier, folks like that. I really believe he had that kind of talent as an actor. We never got to see it fully developed. I'm trying not to give away the book, but I will say that there's some interesting stories in the book about some acting opportunities that he could have had a lot of people are not aware of that i've discovered in the midst of all the interviews i've interviewed probably 150 people over the years for this tupac book but i think he would have been an incredible actor i think he would have been a voice for a lot of folks i think he would continue to be a voice for a lot of folks it's just interesting it's like in, as i was saying earlier when i was i'm reading the gloria steiner book of marilyn monroe when she wrote the book in 1986 she said marilyn monroe would have been 60. that just jarred me monroe died grad at 36. Pac was 25. You just don't know. Marvin Gaye was in his 40s. You just don't know. And now that in my 50s, I'm like, man. As we're winding
0: here, I want to give you props, Kevin, continue to give you props. I know mentorship means a lot to you, man. You do a lot of that. I'm curious. Are you optimistic these days, brother?
1: Yeah, I always am. Yes. I was just on the phone with a young man today from Prairie View because I give my telephone number to everybody, especially young people. Just call me if you need something. You know what I mean? Because Brad, that's what I remember about folks like you. You were always accessible. Those things stick with you. And I am in spite of everything, all the craziness out here, I just wake up every day, what can I do to be of service? What can I do to help in some small way? That's how I feel. And I think I can't be hopeless. My mother has a grade school education. My grandmother, her mother could not read or write. I found out years after my father died that he was illiterate as well. And and I'm like, here I am, someone who went to college and has 15 books and I've been able to do some things I couldn't even imagine. So I have to have hope, man. And I have to spread that to other people. And I think no matter what your circumstance, we can't control how we were born. And I don't, everyone's life is important to me. I don't care what your privilege or lack of privilege is. But I think about what gives me hope is when I listen to the Bobby Kennedy speech, one of my heroes, along with Malcolm and Martin, when he gives that speech when Dr. King was killed, Bobby Kennedy, the Kennedy family, we all know the Kennedy family, tremendous wealth, tremendous power and privilege. But Bobby was transformed by the trauma of his brother, John, being assassinated on national TV, broad daylight. And he became a different person in the last four or five years of his life, where he became a voice in spite of it. He uses privilege. There's nothing wrong with having privilege, but do you use it to help other people? Do you use it to affect change in this world? And you listen to that speech he gives in Indianapolis, Indiana, Brad, where it's this white brother in a majority black audience, and he has to announce to this audience that Dr. King, a man of peace, has been blown away in Memphis, Tennessee. And this gasp in the audience, But guess what? What gives me hope is that the way he spoke, people should go look at it. Listen, watch it on YouTube, Brad. People need to go watch that speech on YouTube. He said, we have to figure this out. And the way he spoke, Indianapolis was one of the few cities in the country where there's a black population that did not explode in rebellion that night. is because of the humanity. Bobby Kennedy at some point ceased being privileged, rich powerful, a white man, whatever his race was, he became a human being. So what gives me hope, let's say they would Malcolm, my hero Malcolm, when he came back from Mecca and the way he spoke. And when he went down to Alabama, when Dr. King was in jail, he said to Coretta Scott King, I'm just trying to help. You could feel the constant evolution of their humanity. I think if we can look at examples like Malcolm and Bobby, Brad, that's what gives me hope. Anything is possible. Be your best self, be your best self. Malcolm and Bobby left that for us. Be your best self.
0: Kevin, maintaining your equilibrium, meditation, prayer, books, all of the
1: above. I pray and meditate every morning and I pray and meditate every night. Yeah, I just, I'm thankful to the universe for light. Exercise is spiritual to me. I believe in it deeply. And I wish I had known these things in the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it could have saved me a whole bunch of liquor bills. Thank you. I still have the American Express
0: receipts to, to show it. Kevin Powell was such a great body of work, man. I have such deep admiration for you, brother. I love your voice. I love what you do, man. And I'm just really grateful to know you and thank you so much for taking the time and, and joining us today
1: thank you and ambassador shabazz and linda please thank you all for so much this is a great program and honestly brad if i could just say this and it doesn't have to be a part of the show but like i've done so many interviews and what i admire about what y'all are doing here it's holistic you know what i mean it's not just one thing but we get to talk about a range of things that matters and that's one reason why i used to love the old dick Cavett show remember that show back in the day because he could talk about anything that's how you do it that's how you do it That bit of advertisement for our podcast i
0: think we'll probably include that kevin Powell. Please do. thank you <laughs> Wow. What just an inspiring conversation. I'm here with my sister, my friend, my longtime partner, Ambassador Shabazz, our segment we call How We Move. So break some of that down for me. That Kevin Powell, boy, oh boy.
2: All I can really say is my heart is still digesting the range of watching someone for 30 years in his journey, starting with Real World. I watched that. I I saw all of it. I knew all of the stories and it was our introduction to being an eye on the wall in the lives of young people and to watch the emergence, this kind of unyielding, ever-evolving, contributory, living life real all the time. I'm on his blog list or I get his emails over the years and his journey to find answers and share discoveries. And I'm watching it from an older perspective and being informed by the lens of a person walking through that era, that period, that time. And to listen to him now on this other side of an evolution for himself, it just sounds healthy. He sounds happy. It was joy and bounce. It wasn't just the analysis of crises, which we certainly got to hear him talk about loud and clear, but also the optimism, notwithstanding the traumas. And I think that's the kind of muscle, heart muscle, cardio muscle, spirit muscle we need to hear more about from his generation and those that follow, because they are looking for a bridge to, I know life is real, but how do I put one foot in front of the other? I didn't always live perfect, but I am perfectly adjourning to the next phase or stage. And so I just, I loved it. And some of the people that he mentioned are really close to me. So I know, like Gloria Steinem is like a dear sister of mine. We write and engage and and inform and heads up each other on a regular basis. And not just the woman who was the founder of Ms. Magazine, just the human being. Herself, when these people who are captured in life based on the headlines, like a Quincy Jones, they could be who they are to us publicly if they weren't who they were actually.
0: He referenced your dad, as uh, almost all of our guests do, paying homage to you and your family. But Kevin, in the absence of having a father of his own, he specifically referenced your father in many ways. Did you feel about what he had to say and what resonated with you about how he talked about
2: your dad i heard the authenticity and it seems like a person who's really gotten to know the human being my father and not weaponizing my dad the journey of a human being but that really goes to person that's trying to do that authentic quest him or herself i was actually i've had the fortune of being in touch with him and corresponding with him and knowing his heart meaning kevin powell and to hear the background to where my father fit, it was really touching. And then it offers an expansion in spite of the loss of my So I greatly appreciate it as I sit here and- It adds to the story. It adds to the authenticity of a young man, my dad who didn't make it to 40 in the effort of trying to put, make a difference in the lives of others notwithstanding the, right. the sadness, the errors of ways in, in humanity, but the reclamation of got to be better than this. And we are all entitled to that. And I'm here at Malcolm X. Shabazz High School in Newark, and it's the 50th anniversary of the school. But it has not really had the benefit of that. It just has the extraversary. So the thing becomes, how do we make sure That it's not just a monogram on a shirt or on a team, or it's not a mascot, but that we, when we name things after people, and he listed so many wonderful, amazing contributors, that it's not just a one-liner or it's not just a tag, but that we're really using those persons, those names, those lives to transform young people. Interestingly enough, when he mentioned the uh, Woman King, we are taking 150 students from Newark Public Schools to see the Woman King. And after that, we were given the house, the room. And so, because of how easy that was, we're going to do it a few times so that in rotation, it's not just a theater outing, but we get to talk about Indigenous Peoples Month, the International Day of the Girl, which is coming forward, understanding matriarchy, strength. I, despite my flu or cold or whatever, I'm experiencing dragged myself to opening weekend, which I've always been a supporter of. Anytime films come out, I make sure that Friday to Sunday, I'm putting my dollars in the bank for them that are making these movies. And speaking with Gina Prince-Bythewood last year while she was making this, she had no voice like I have now. Just there in, in South Africa. And we don't know her name the way we should know her name. We will, We definitely know Viola Davis's name and some of the other artists, but we have to know about the people who effort to make sure that stories that are not always guaranteed an audience are seen supported so that we have imagery. As Kevin Powell stated, if we don't see it, we can't imagine it. You can feel it. Faith can tell you it's out there for you, but to be able to see it and have it recognized is really quite precious. So I'm listening to him what was contributed or subtracted from his early life, what's happening with young people today. Every time we do something with these kids that are discounted, we actually have a ball with it. So somewhere in there is the opportunity to assure the difference, not just make a difference, assure it, guarantee it, follow through with it.
0: And I wanted to tie in and wrap up on this point, but what you're doing in Newark at the school and what we touched on towards the end with Kevin, mentorship, I know that's a big part of your life and you shoulder so much of that and I'm really happy to hear when anyone donates a room, a theater, money, writes a right to check. These causes, the up close and personal time that you spend with youth and influencing them and being a presence in their lives is such important work. You and Kevin have that in common. Just Touch on that for a moment, if you will.
2: I just can't imagine not. And so, youth means anybody younger than me because I think about my mother when she was young. She was way younger than I am now, and that she always persevered. We talk about, I knew your mother too, and notwithstanding any of the things that one endures, anyone that was in her presence. So, we just, I think, if you've been a witness of triumph over opposition. Um, You just have to be in the circle of people that get you through the storm so that you can get to the other side and make sure that when you get to the other side, you have a lifeline for others. And with young people, I have an amazing memory. I have crib memory, right? So I want to make sure that no matter what in the series of accountings that people have in their life, if you can remember that favorite teacher, that great moment, that experience, why not?
0: Yeah. yeah, our mutual friend Eric LaSalle gave me a Maya Angelou quote that just resonates with me. And reminded of hearing you talk about that, people won't remember what you said; they won't necessarily remember what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. Absolutely,
2: and you'll see it on their face immediately when you, start, you mention someone's name. There's either a grin, or you mention someone's name, and someone's darting a telepathic eye <laughs> across the room or something but that's the truth and as with all people i was in the airport a waiting gate at between gates And just watching babies, parents were a little tired of traveling. The babies were a little whiny. But as soon as you catch an eye of a baby and you smile or you wink or you wave or you flash your face under the mask, they're like, you my bud.
0: I know that's how I feel when I see your name come up in my phone.
2: Yeah. Oh.
0: Knowing that you're calling. That's my reaction. Yeah, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Yeah. Ambassador Shabazz.
2: That's the kind of thing, my dear. It's like the memories that nurture I think is something that we can always assure will be passed on from not just from you to the other, but from that person who's in receipt to yet another.
0: There you go. Get on out there. I know we've had you here for a little while, and the kids, I can hear them clamoring out there in the hallway. Ambassador Shabazz, how we move? How we moving. Good seeing you.
2: Bye-bye, my dear.